Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He marched for civil rights in the Children's Crusade in his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, when he was just 12 years old. Today, Dr. Freeman Rabowski, president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, is one of the world's most celebrated educators, winning a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Council on Education. In 2012, Time Magazine named him one of the top 100 most influential leaders in the world. Oh yeah, he's also the author of three books and his two TED Talks have been heard by tens of thousands of people online. Freeman Hrabowski, a history maker who continues to pave the way. Dr. Hrabowski, thank you so much for being with us. It's a real honor. I'm honored to be talking with you. Thank you. I have heard you called just reading things about you. I've heard you called a leader, a history maker, a dreamer, a mega nerd. I think that one was one of yours. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Which one of those do you feel like you most relate to? A uh, little kid from Birmingham, mm-hmm. of all things, probably just a kid from Birmingham. So whenever I hear people introducing me and you hear these awards mm-hmm. and stuff, I have two thoughts. One, oh my God, I'm getting old. <laughs> And number two, I want students and young people to know, no, we're just kids who just get a little bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. You bring up Birmingham, and that's really where I wanted to start. It was one of the cities that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called one of the most thoroughly segregated cities in America. Yes, yes. What was that like growing up as you were little? I mean, it's everything that you learned from the time you were born until you're young. You know, I I tell people all the time that we're all products of our childhood experiences, but growing up in Birmingham for me was very special in two ways. It was almost like Dickens and the Tale of Two Cities, because in our neighborhood, we were loved. Our church, our school, uh, even the stores, everything was, quite frankly, completely black, African-American. And I was very fortunate to have... uh, older, educated parents, Mm -hmm. all right? And the neighborhood was just like that. So I grew up with people who are famous now, like Cundi Rice or Angela Davis, or a little older also would be Mrs. Powell, Emma Vivian Powell. So all of us were in these these black middle-class Birmingham. Now you get outside of the neighborhood and you go to downtown Birmingham and anyone in power was white, anyone, including the people who were on the cash registers, the fire people, the firemen and the police officers, everybody, not one black in any, not a salesperson. No, the only people black you saw downtown in the stores would be maids and people cleaning the floors. So you had these two groups. In one case, you find yourself feeling like you you don't really belong or you are second class. In the other case, my neighborhood, my school, my church, my family, we're told, Two or three things. You're a child of God. You're very special. You don't have time to be a victim. Um, you are just destined to do great things and that you must be twice as good because the world may not be fair. But don't be a victim. Just work hard and do the best you can. Was there a moment where it dawned on you or you realized that the people in these power positions were all different than you, a different race than you? Or was that just the norm? No, it was very clear okay. that they were because on TV, There was no one black respected when I was a child. I mean, the only show on TV was uh, 
the, the Amos and Andy, which made us look like buffoons. Yeah. The first show that showed a brown face with some dignity was Julia, uh, who was Diane Carroll, the beautiful Diane Carroll. And she was a nurse. She was an educated woman raising her child. It was the first time we had seen someone with some dignity. And perhaps in the movies, we had seen the beautiful Lena Horne. But in terms of regular TV, no, there was no one. No. Mm -hmm. In your book, Holding Fast to Dreams, uh, you talk about your parents when you were probably about 12 years old, bringing you to church and you were not really wanting to be there. You were sitting and coloring in the back. Um, You really have been reading. I have. (laughs) I'm from the library. I have to read. This is my, you know, your book is in the library, all three of them. (laughs) I love it. Um, You wrote, we knew that blacks were not treated fairly by those in power, but we tended to think this is the way of the world. In contrast, this man was saying that the world could change and that even the children could have an impact on what might happen to us in the future. In fact, he was saying that our actions were needed and mattered. I was impressed. I asked my parents, who is that man? Yeah, I was was sitting there. And before that, I was just really not happy. Not one. Who wants to be in church in the middle of the week? Mm -hmm. Kid, right? And I I keep saying this. And I was just chubby little kid, loving math. They would placate me with the two things I loved most. One was math. The other was eating. And so I was eating <laughs> M&Ms, the great kind with the peanuts, and doing my math. And the guy says this. And when he said that, he also said, and you'll be able to go to better schools. Now, we had some wonderful teachers. We didn't have the resources. And the schools were clearly inferior physically and otherwise to the to the white schools. And I said, who is that guy? And they said his name was Dr. Martin Luther King. And I went, wow. And it was the first time I believed that my world could be different, that perhaps tomorrow could be better than today, and that I, even at 12, could help that happen. Yeah. What was it like? We see his speeches on TV, on video, but... What was the experience in real life? Because I always find dynamic speakers, yes, they yes. they go through the airwaves, but it had sure. to be such a different experience. It was very special. He was very powerful as a speaker. But my minister, who had been the assistant pastor for his father, for Daddy King, was also my role model was Reverend Porter. Was I mean, I, I speak now like John Porter. I spoke at his funeral. I mean, and he and King were, were peers. Uh, and Dr. King, I should say, with Pierce. And uh, it was just, it was enveloping. It was something about it that was empowering, all right? And uh, he was so well-read. It was clear in the speeches that Dr. King gave that he had read a lot in philosophy. And I, I should have said earlier, and I was so fortunate because my mother was a teacher. My parents had both been teachers. Sure. And mother was an English teacher. And so I was reading I was reading books beyond me at an early age just because she wanted to push me and thought that this reading could open doors. And so even as a middle school child, she would punish me using characters from books <laughs> from the Harlem Renaissance, uh, Richard Wright's The Native Son or Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man or Dostoevsky and Raskolnikov. So from black literature to Russian literature. I, and my friends would say, who is she talking about? What is she talking about? I was embarrassed because I knew because we talked about characters as people and their characteristics. So it was with that kind of background that I sat there hearing this man. And it was clear that his mother had taught him to read really well, too. <laughs> yes. I'm the daughter of an educator, so, so I understand. you understand what I'm saying. Yes, yeah. always books. Oh, yeah, always yeah, yeah. books. Very powerful. And it was that moment that it feels like it really inspired you it to did. make 
the decision to yeah to march yes yeah and, and I your went parents home. maybe i went home and said i've got to do this <laughs> yes. i've got to march and mm-hmm. they said absolutely not <laughs> and i looked i was so upset and i said you guys made me go i didn't want to go you told me to listen and i kind of listened <laughs> uh and now i want to do what he asked me to do and you want you are hypocrites at that time you you just did not tell your parents that they were nope. hypocrites. So what did my dad say? The thing you've always heard, everybody hears, go to your room. Mm-hmm. Like, go to your room, son. Go to your room. And I just knew they were upset with me because I was so out of line. And yet the next morning they came in. They had not slept. They were just struggling with this. And I could tell he'd been crying. I'd never seen my parents cry before. And they, was just, they just looked like they were so worried. And they said, it's not that we don't trust you. It's that we just haven't thought of trusting the people who would be over you because if you march, you are going to jail. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had just seen uh, what happens. And they said, but if you want to go, we'll put you in God's hands. And now at that point, uh, my cousin who was living with us looked at me and he said, those dogs are going to get you. <laughs> oh, he started teasing me. And I was not a courageous kid. I have to always tell my students, no, 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 no. I was not. The only thing I'd ever attacked in my life was a math problem. All right. <laughs> Imagine this chubby little nerdy kid loving math going to jail because of one of the better education. Mm-hmm. And I did go. We were given training um, before and I did go. And there is a photo in the book, in my book. Um, that's also in the new African-American Museum uh, there at, and I didn't know it until somebody said, Freeman, you're there. The Birmingham News had found this picture of me, photo of me uh, in the line. And everybody says, you look so mean. I'm 12 year old chubby kid. I wasn't mean, I was scared. Yeah. Oh my God, I was scared. But I did go, it was an empowering experience. Um, we were treated miserably. Mm-hmm. And yet there was something about it that empowered us to say, we can do this. It was a, it was a time of both a fear of reflection, but of imagining the possibilities, because that was the big question. So what's this going to lead to? Will the world be better? This program is presented by the Enoch Pratt Free Library, producer of the celebrated Writer's Live speaker series. Get up close and personal with the most notable authors of our time at the Pratt. Writer's Live is a free program bringing best-selling authors who are shaping our culture to Baltimore. Learn more about Writer's Live at prattlibrary.org. The Enoch Pratt Free Library. Your journey starts here. How much has that experience really informed where you went with the rest of your life? Yeah, such a young experience. You were just 12. And I reflected on it several times. One time was when Spike Lee did his movie, the documentary for little girls. I had not wanted to do it because for a long time, the children of that period just didn't want to think about it, Uh, especially because of the, the tragedies that occurred after that. But I reflected then, and then later on, as I got older and I wrote this last book, I thought about how those experiences shaped my thinking about education. And I even the title of the book, Holding Fast to Dreams, is a reflection of my thinking about Langston Hughes and the poem that we were taught, right, that I use with students all the time. And the, the point was this, that that period taught me the the significance of community, of having other people with whom I could relate of having children who were there with the same purpose. I have a TED talk that says the same things. High expectations, right? Great community to support each other, that it takes 
leaders to bring others into the work. It takes artists to produce artists. It takes scientists to produce scientists. And so adults bring children into the work. It takes one pe people who love to read to pull people into the reading, right? And, and then to assess what it was. And so what I learned from that period came, uh, it's just come through in all of what I've done. Um, uh, when I'm studying French, I'm doing it because I'm looking at others who are studying French, right? And working and talking, you learn to to speak by speaking or to do. And the fact that I am fascinated with mathematics comes because of thinking about how you can solve problems. But the same thing about T.S. Eliot, the idea of um, the wasteland of, of constantly working to understand his point and all the points. All of that came as a result of that period when the big problem, the big question, the ineluctable question that Dr. King asked was this, how do we get a society to live up to its ideals? It says all men are created equal, meaning all men and women are created equal, of course, but how do you get them to really mean that and show that so that a child of color can have the same opportunities as anyone else? That was the big problem. And I was listening to that at the same time that I was trying to solve a word problem in math. So I always connect the problem solving yep. from the math to thinking about life itself. That's how I experience. That's how I've experienced it over the years, and it's what I see as I talk to students now. That problems that are really important in the world are not solved overnight. That's what I say when we think about the condition of our country right now. That it is a democracy, which is messy, is the word we use, and things aren't always as we want them to be. But if you have that hope and you keep working at it and working to to move towards a better place, you can get there. And I want to shift a little bit from the past to the present. Yes. And we're already kind of delving into that. But how do you talk to your students about? the struggles that were faced back in the 60s, do they relate to it? Do they not want to hear it? Do they right. feel like it's too distant past right. for them? You know, I, I wrote a piece um, that I was going to, to share on the 50-year period since the 60s. And at the time, I was chairing the Obama Commission on Education for African Americans. And so anything I wrote had to be uh, reviewed by people in the White House. And, yep. and they were wonderful younger people. And I, in the piece, I said most Americans were not even born in 1963. And I gave the numbers. People don't realize that two thirds of Americans were not in the world in 1963. And, and one of the people, being very, very diplomatic, said, well, Why is it important to say that? And I said this How many of you remember? where you were and how you felt when 9-11 occurred. Okay. And they all said, of course we do. Yep. Fear, don't believe it, whatever, what's gonna happen? I said, and when you have kids, do you think they will experience it the same way when they, when they see it? And they immediately got the point. And so my point here is every generation has a responsibility to write about, to talk about, to connect to the next generation to give them as much of a sense of what was going on as possible. That's why when I say walking downtown and not seeing anybody in a position of power and seeing that every day, you become accustomed to that. And that's why people of my generation, uh, when they see all of a sudden somebody uh, of color, somebody African-American or Hispanic in a big position, we go, wow. That's why women sometimes today sure. they do that because there's so many places women have not had a chance to present the United States, right? You know, so again, there's that sense that it's not happened before, it's just happening, and you have a kind of excitement that's different from people who've seen certain things all their lives. What has been your reaction and how do you talk to your students about 
some of the things that we've been seeing recently, specifically what happened in Charlottesville. Sure. You know, people walked sure. away from that thinking, sure. I thought we were past that, but yeah. we weren't. It was just hidden in a closet yeah. somewhere and now it's back out. Sure. How well, do they, you talk about that? You know, the first thing people, I hear students, but also other people saying, we've never been this divided before in our country. And I'm saying, and that's why history is so important. Because whether we're talking about the 60s, meaning the 1960s, or the 60s, meaning the 1860s, we believe me, we're as divided. We really were, Absolutely. right? Yep. Uh, by geography, obviously by race, by income level, all those things. And my point is, we've been through periods of great division before, and the challenge in each case, civil war, civil rights today, was to find the common ground to find the common ground and to keep focusing on the education of people. Because the more people know about the past and they get the context, and the more they learn to think critically, and the more they're taught to listen to other perspectives, the greater the chance will come to the common ground. And that's gotta be the goal. We talk about people in leadership positions. This is sort of the not so distant past. What did it mean to you when Barack Obama won the election, was uh-huh. made the first black president. Is that a moment where you remember oh, where you yeah. were and all of... Even when I hear it now, I get teary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know him and I'm so proud of him. Um, it was such a moment for America. Such a moment for America. And at the same time, it was a, it was a period of needing to understand what does this mean for all of us? How do we continue to work to find the common ground? And does it mean we have arrived? No, it means it is another achievement in humankind, but we still have the challenges. Race still does matter. Uh, Income level matters more than ever. Growing divide between those who have and those who don't. Uh, I thought it was a, a moment that said, there's so many wonderful and decent people who want to do the right thing of all races of all races, right? And I think it's a moment that we can use to inspire us today. Absolutely. Because there are still so many people who want to do the right thing and so many people who believe they're doing the right thing and need opportunities to discuss, to talk about, to understand on both sides. And that's that's what educators should be doing. Yes. Education, obviously your parents were educators. Was it something you always knew you wanted to go into as path for you? Oh yeah, my mother said I was born in the classroom. Literally, at that time, a teacher could not, and my mother and father had been married 10 years when I was born, I was the first and only child. I had a cousin who grew up with me. But at that time, if you were a teacher and became pregnant and you were married, you had to stop teaching, even though you were married, okay? And so the women in the school decided to support my mother. They were so happy because she'd wanted to have a kid for years. They decided to make a style, a fashion style, of these loose-fitting dresses that they would all wear all the time. And mother was thin enough that literally until June, the principal didn't know she was pregnant. And I was born about a month and a half later. And she always said, it would have been so amazing if you'd been born when I was, while I was still t- so she always said, you were born in the classroom, you were destined to teach. She was not interested in my being a principal or an administrator to her. There was no work more noble than teaching because she said, we teachers touch them all. Yeah. From the time you started at UMBC to present day, yeah. 
What has that journey meant to you? I mean, so much has changed. Oh, it, it, it's been such an amazing ride for me. First of all, the, you always have the naysayers. So people said when I first became president, oh, he just got it because he's black on both sides. Oh, they, he's just window dressing, right? He won't be there two years. And those who didn't trust my colleagues, oh, they won't let him last two years. So, oh, I mean, of every race, it just, it was. Now, at the same time, there were so many people of all races who said, oh, what a wonderful statement for Baltimore to be this first black president of predominantly white university in this region, blah, blah, blah. It was such an honor that my colleagues who had known me already for five years made the decision to invite me to become president. And it was such an honor that people from public and private sectors from around this region came to the installation. The place was packed. You know, it was a new experience, sure. right? It really was. And it was so significant because UMBC was founded at such a time that people of all races could come here. We're the only campus in the state of Maryland like that. People forget we are the South. Yeah. With upper South, yeah. but the South, right? But it was progressive so, from the beginning. From the beginning, from 1966. And so we've always had kids here from all backgrounds. And we were next to Columbia, founded at the same period. Right. And Columbia was founded with this new idea where people would come together and go to church together, work together, whatever, marry. It was the Columbia was the only place where, in the South where people of different races could marry. Wow. And there are great examples like Soledad O'Brien. Her parents were Hopkins students and uh, they, they married there. Uh, and what's interesting is that you see it here now. We have students from over 100 countries. What's different today from that period was um, yeah, we of course were a predominantly white place, but we had black kids and a few Hispanic and Asians. But today, again, students from 100 countries. So we talk about both international and domestic diversity. You've got students from any place in the world speaking all kinds of languages. And what's really nice is that students of all backgrounds are doing well academically. That's the most important part. And they love to read. Aha. <laughs> That's always the key. You can always go back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Is there, um, uh, it's brought so much acclaim to the university from what it was to, you know, I sure. walked by and they were saying, you guys are number nine in innovation yeah. from U.S. News and sure. World Report. I mean, sure. seeing those statistics has to be amazing and to see the pride on the faces of all your students because oh, of it. Yeah. yeah, people feel good about being here. And uh, I give credit to the state. The state has done a lot to support us and others have, but we now have almost, I think, 80,000 alumni, right? Who are, uh, many of whom, 70% are still in this corridor, others other places. But, you know, and presidents like to brag on oh, who they are, you, you name it. The, the head of the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab is a UMBC graduate, PhD in computer science from here. The head of data science there. The chief information officer at Hopkins University is one of ours. And we're very proud of that because we know Hopkins is by far world class. So to be able to pr place people there, not just in doctoral programs, but to have our PhDs going there to work and to lead, big deal. Chair of neurosurgery at Vanderbilt, one of ours. President of Clemson, the new football champions, right? It's so ironic <laughs> because he is a guy with all degrees in technology at a fine academic place that's big in football, coming from a place that does not have football. <laughs> Soccer is our football, all right? And of course, basketball. I mean, really nerdy basketball where you can beat UVA. That's who we are from right. last year, right? You but can the beat fact UVA and still get an A plus, and still right? get an A plus, right? Yep. But the Jim Clements, a young man who would tell you, first in his family go to college, he and his twin brother both get PhDs. Now he's president of Clemson, and it's a, it's a great story. So to have this young university producing people who are now in the faculties of Harvard and Stanford and leading a Clemson and at Vanderbilt, it's not a bad story. Yeah, <laughs> the list keeps getting longer. Yeah, right? because a great faculty and and a mindset here that. It says um, 
The significance of UMBC is that we're saying to the world, you don't have to be rich to be the very best. In so many ways, our society always says those with the most money will always go to the most prestigious places and do the most prestigious things. And that's all fine. But when we can say working class kids, middle class kids, or first generation kids can be excellent academically, that's the American story worth telling to the world. The Free to Be More podcast is sponsored by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Now featuring Canopy, a free video streaming service available with your library card. Stream over 30,000 titles with the click of a button. Learn more at prattlibrary.org. Your kids talk about how the country's divided and they haven't seen that before. How do you talk to them? Because they're in this really interesting part of their lives. Yes. How do you talk to them about sure. being a change agent sure. and going out there and you know changing yeah. things? Because yeah. they're the ones that are the future. It's so, so important. Service is so important here and in other universities. But we have a major breaking ground initiative focused on classroom experiences that connect to service in Baltimore City, out here in Baltimore County, working at Lakeland Elementary and tutoring, but going to work in an orphanage in rural Kenya to develop a clean water structure. People don't realize that there are places in the world, many, where children have to drink water that's contaminated. You know, so being able to work on those kinds of issues, working with senior citizens in Baltimore and understanding their needs for physical accessibility and then building things, uh, but working in the arts and the, the big initiative called Imagining America mm-hmm. has our, our faculty in arts and humanities looking at ways that the humanities can be used in solving problems and understanding the human condition. So, I mean, doing all that work and putting students into it, showing them that whether they're majoring in the arts or humanities or social sciences or in science and engineering, they can make a difference, mm-hmm. that each of us can make a difference. That's the point. Mm-hmm. So many of your students, so many people who hear you speak, uh, graduations, you speak at tons of graduations. So many of those people admire you. Who do you admire? Ah, I always talk about my grandmother. I had two wonderful grandmothers, one of whom lived with us. And I always think, and she, this grandmother had a sixth grade education. Yes, she was really wise. She was really wise. And my mother, the English teacher, her mother, um, the two of them I see sitting at the dining room table as my grandmother wanted to vote. Mm-hmm. And this was in the early 60s. And there was something called the Alabama Literacy Test. And it was focused on the fact that if you were white, you could cross, make an X, and you could vote. If you were black, you had to pass this test. And the test was based on the Constitution. And I watched my mother working with her mother to prepare for the test. In Birmingham, we could vote, but my mother had said uh, to her mother, mother, just vote here in Birmingham. Let's make your citizenship here. She said, no, I, I am from Wetumpka, which is outside of Montgomery, and I have lived there all my life. I am a citizen of that city. And there you had to go through this Alabama. She took the test once and she didn't pass. And she was so clever that she got some of her friends and told them to memorize questions on the test. These were very, very uh, difficult questions from the Constitution. Questions I've used with bunches of lawyers who didn't know the answers either, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. But she had them memorize parts of the test so they could at least put it together and, and learn how to read and understand 
what he was saying. And my mother worked with them all. And But my mother did this. And so by the time she was going to take the test the third time, and there were all these questions about impeachment and everything else, she'd have me asking her these questions. And she sounded like a lawyer. And she <laughs> went and she took that test and she passed. And she came in, she came back and and she came in the door and we were all so excited and looked at her and she said, I am now a, a voting first class American citizen. She was 70 years old. Wow. You know, and so I say to everybody, how dare you not vote? People have died so we can have this right. You know, there's where we start as a citizen. Justice Brandeis said the most important role in our society, I say this so often, is that of citizen. And that begins with voting. And the fact that amazingly, not too many years ago, only a hundred years ago, women could not vote in America. Yeah, you know, just think about that. It's just unbelievable. So the idea of help, helping people to understand the urgency of people voting and deciding, not telling them whom to vote for, but just saying, you have this right, you must exercise this right. How dare you not? Is something that, I, so when I think about who I admire, I start with my grandmother and my parents and my teachers and my minister and all those people. And then I end up with my students. Mm -hmm. My students admire me for so many reasons. Some have faced all kinds of obstacles. Some have cancer. Others have had all kinds of setbacks and yet they keep going. Yep. They keep going. So every day I see students on campus and I know their stories and I think to myself, how dare I feel depressed? <laughs> yep. Pick it up, right? Keep that positive attitude. So my students inspire me every day. Is there a book, we, we are the library, so yes, is there a yeah. book that you go back to that you recommend to people that you read every few years, oh. something like that? I thought about you asking that question. And, my, <laughs> and the funny part is I would say there's so many books uh -huh. that come to mind um, from books of the Harlem Renaissance to, um, um, when I think about it, I would say this, Bleak House, Charles Dickens' Bleak House. Why? Because that was when I was at another level of development and an English professor. I went back to take some, some grad courses, to audit some grad courses in literature. After finishing my PhD, I had to get into PhD because my mother still felt, she said, you know, you were still not really deep, which was so insulting. But, <laughs> but, but uh, and I, I, I did go back and, uh, and somebody challenged me, said, see, if you, see what you think of Bleak House. Mm-hmm. And I did, and it was really challenging, and yet it was fascinating, and it took me to another level. Now, as a child, I did grow up, and I did enjoy the books, the kind of books I was talking about, but and the poetry of that period. But I enjoyed Dickens, but I enjoyed Jane Austen, um, Charlotte Bronte, you see? The 19th century, especially. The pace was different, and it's about humankind. And what I would say to you is what, what really gives me inspiration from books is the emphasis on human behavior. I tell my students when they want to only read techie stuff, I'm saying, <laughs> no, 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 get to the literature, mm -hmm. get to the philosophy, because then you get into the heads of people in the way you don't when you're even sitting talking to them, because I can tell you some things, but I don't really tell you everything I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a book, you get into everybody's head and heart and you really learn human behavior. So it is the idea of of novels for me, but even all the way back to the historical stuff, like Up From Slavery and, and Mr. Washington, Booker T. Washington, right, to Benjamin Mays' book. The, I mean, there's just so many books like the autobiographies I enjoy, but I love literature. I enjoy novels. 
of different periods and not just novels. And my, as my parents always said, you want to know your own culture, but no other cultures because, right. because then you know your own culture even better. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Dostoevsky helped me understand, uh, Ralph Ellison and the Invisible Man because I could have, I had read by that time, by the time I was in high school, I'd read notes from underground, mm-hmm. you see, and, and the idiot. You see, yeah, right. You know, and you come to you, you connect, you make connections. So when I think about a book, I, I would have to say no. It's not just a genre, but it is the idea of literature and the fascination of the thoughts of others. Mm-hmm. You do give a lot of graduation speeches, a lot of speeches out there. Um, what advice? Do you kind of always go back to what do you mm-hmm. the advice you give young people? It goes all the way back to my childhood. And the number one thing I would say, what I would hope for every child in Baltimore of every race, every child in our country and beyond. It is the idea that if you give a child a sense of self so that she believes in herself and she doesn't allow anyone else to define who she is. And then if you teach her to love to read, she will be okay. That's true for the child. That's true for a college graduate. That's true for all of us. Believing in ourselves and taking in ideas. I don't know. How do you live without reading? Right? It's just so important. It is. Dr. Freeman Rybowski, thank you so much for joining us. It was an honor. Thank you. Enjoyed it. The conversation felt authentic. Thank you. The Free to Be More podcast is supported by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Need to brush up on your computer skills? Check out the Pratt Centers for Technology Training. From Internet Basics to Advanced Excel and everything in between, the Pratt offers free computer classes at eight locations around the city. You can even get help using your tablet and smartphone. For more information, go to prattlibrary.org. You're free to be more at the Pratt. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free-to-be-more conversation. Thanks for listening.